Welcome to another episode of Singled In, a gathering place for single members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in their 30s and 40s, also known as mid-singles. I'm Oliver. And I'm Lindsay. Today we are joined by Dr. Jennifer finlayson Fife. We're so excited to have her. We're going to be talking about sexuality for singles, and we'll dive into more of that topic as we get going. But yeah, we're delighted that she was able to join us. She can tell us a little bit about yourself, but she is a renowned sex therapist in the LDS Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints community. And I know a lot of people who really love and rely on her wisdom as figuring things out for themselves and for partnerships. So I love her podcasts and everything that she offers and taking a little course of hers called the art of desire. We could talk about that later Mm -hmm. talk about some of her other resources and link them as well. Mm -hmm. But yeah, how about you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Well, sure. So let's see, I I'll try to give the short ish version, but (laughs) (laughs) I grew up in Vermont. My parents are both from Idaho. I was a student at BYU studied psychology and women's studies, and then got my PhD in counseling psychology wrote my dissertation on LDS women and sexual agency. So I was really interested in the question of in this sort of sexually and socially conservative ethic, were women, did women basically feel repressed in their sexuality when they moved into marriage or were women freer to sort of claim sexuality in that legitimate context? And Um, you know, so I did that research that's led to me doing a lot of teaching and presenting both online courses and podcasting, because I've done a lot of work with couples and individuals in the church and developed content to help people navigate both their faith in a high standard around sexuality while thinking about how to approach it in a way that doesn't create repression and fear and anxiety and self-hatred or ways to kind of work as an antidote to a lot of those received messages. Mm -hmm. So that's who I am. And yeah, happy to be here. Yeah, we're so happy to have you. And you're based out of Chicago, correct? Mm -hmm. Love Mm -hmm. it. How big of a demographic is your demographic? Do you work a lot with mid-singles? Well, not as much. I tend to, so I don't do a lot of one-on-one work anymore. But when I was doing a lot of, you know, time in the chair, so to speak, I would say maybe 10% of my clients were single members of the church uh, that were trying to sort out their way either in their, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. So I've definitely worked with singles, people that were not married, right? I obviously worked with people individually as well that were partnered. But most of my work has been around couples and individual development within that context, primarily because two reasons probably, but one is that sometimes I think the best work one does with people is in the context of being partnered, whether that's a dating relationship or a marriage relationship, because a lot of one's struggles with differentiation or the ability to define oneself while in relationship is really a marker of maturity and it's most exposed in relationship. So It's my favorite domain in which to work, because even if my goal is to help individuals, it's often the best way to see how individuals uh, function, where their strengths are and where they're challenged. But clearly there is, you know, it's easier to talk to Latter-day Saints that are married about sexuality than it is to talk to single people. So it's also been an easy topic to avoid, to be honest, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Uh, Right. You know? So I certainly have a lot of single people, though, that take the courses and are looking for input, for sure, mm-hmm. because there are real significant challenges around how to live in that sexually conservative ethic and stay healthy as a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Just because you're not married doesn't mean you're not a sexual being. being. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is a really interesting topic, especially for, for Latter-day Saints like ourselves, because our whole lives were taught hey, law of chastity, don't do this, don't do that. Yeah. Like, make sure you stay pure and chaste. That's so right. like we have these rules before we get married, but then after you're married, there's kind of like no rules. There's no guideline. Yeah, right. yeah that makes it really right. difficult. Yeah, that's right. So there's a lot of married people that, well, s- some transition very happily. And, and I can think about yeah. with you if it's relevant, like why some people do and how that may be related to single people, because I think it's the same muscle. And yeah. why some people do not, even if it's technically legitimate. So what I, I I teach a course called how to talk to your kids about sex, right? And 
what I am saying, it's the goal as parents is to foster your children's sexual integration, right? Mm. How do you receive the gift of sexuality mm-hmm. and basically be at peace with your capacity for pleasure and sensuality while still making moral, solid decisions that create strength in your life with it, right? Because what we tend to do is either function, what immature people do, I should say, and you know, we're all immature on some level, is we tend to go either into repression and fear or indulgence. And integration is a harder thing to achieve, right? To receive it and choose wisely with it. And so, you know, when we mix a lot of fear with sexuality, we interfere with the ability to do that. Because really kind of a lot of people think of sexuality and Satan as equivalent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As soon as you start having sexual feelings and so on, you are letting evil into your soul. And that really, really actually makes it more likely that people will be fully repressed or compulsive because they are not able to understand desire, reflect on desire, and think about their choices in the face of feelings if they think the feelings themselves are an indication of evil. Mm -hmm. I'm so excited to talk about this. When you talked about your dissertation research in the past, Mm -hmm. about how you found that LDS women or religious women who were more, certain women transitioned more easily into a sexual relationship in marriage. And a lot of it had to do with their own self-efficacy, I guess, around sexuality. Like they had made these decisions for themselves around law of chastity or whatnot. Um, yes. not necessarily as much driven by their parents or church culture, what, whatever society. Yes. Yeah. So that is really interesting to me. I'm curious how people do that, but yeah, maybe yeah. We back up a little bit. Sure. Oh, or Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I can maybe start to say something, but we'll need to maybe back up to explain it. But I would okay. say that the people that tended to do well had moved into a more self-defining position uh-huh. rather than an externalizing of authority position. And when we externalize authority, it's it's encouraged culturally. We even yeah. will call it righteousness, but it interferes with growing up. It interferes with becoming a psychological adult, but it also means people are struggling often between compliant behavior and defiant behavior, uh-huh. right? that they're kind of staying referencing outside of themselves rather than self-determining. And we're afraid of teaching kids and young adults and mid-singles to self-determine because we're afraid if they do, well, they'll just self-determine their way out of the church or into a gluttonous, (laughs) sexual, whatever, uh, indulgent life, right? Yeah. (laughs) As opposed to helping people learn true principles and and then determine their lives, right? Um, And that's when people have learned to move into that adult position. They no longer feel controlled. And they're able to determine their what they feel is best and right. But they actually, you know, at least in my research, the women who did that were actually more conservative in their behavior, actually. Mm-hmm. More likely to actually, oh, from to the naked eye, obey the law of chastity. Mm-hmm. But it's because it was self-determined. That's what they wanted. That's how mm-hmm. they wanted to live their lives. Where when someone was doing it to make sure the bishop wasn't unhappy or the, that their future husband d- didn't, you know... Um, disapprove of them or something. They were much more externally focused and therefore vulnerable to what the boyfriend wanted to Mm -hmm. what, you know, and so they were always in this kind of push and pull outside of themselves Mm -hmm. rather than those that were more self-possessed, more Mm -hmm. self-determining. And as you say, Lindsay, they were self-determining in the sexual domain, but they were in many domains of their lives. So they're more focused on making others happy rather than making themselves happy. Yes. Right. Right. That's, I would say it a little bit differently just to be very accurate. They were more, more focused on how to, their sense of self resided in other people. And so they were trying to figure out how to keep people happy with them so that they could be happy with themselves. Hmm. But the determiner was how they were seen in others' eyes. People that had matured beyond that were more interested in being proud of themselves in their own eyes. They wanted to know that they were being true to the best in themselves. And so they were, you know, one of the people had come out of a rather chaotic 
fam- her parents had divorced. There was more chaos in the home that her mother had multiple partners. She wanted a different reality around sexuality. And so she was determined to get it. She wanted more stability. She wanted to marry well. And so because it was coming from a core desire within her, she never felt controlled by anyone, but it was a way of living up to her highest desire and creating that reality for herself. She was not interested in keeping others pleased with her. She was interested in being at peace with herself. Mm. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. Our first question, I feel like you kind of answered, or you did answer was about sexual repression. Like how does it come about? And it makes sense that the church and parents and others would kind of maybe teach more of a black and maybe not black and white, but a a more repressive model around Mm -hmm. that, because Mm -hmm. it is scary to give someone autonomy and be like, okay, figure out what you want to do and Mm -hmm. they make the right decision or right in quotes, Mm -hmm. I guess, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever is best. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think that's part of it, but I think it's also that a lot of times the people teaching the ideas haven't grown out of it themselves either. That is to say that sexuality has also continued to be scary or difficult for them, either because they are still functioning from a repressive place and they've never enjoyed marital sex, or they are struggling with compulsivity or struggle with porn. And so therefore they're bringing all of their unresolved internal turmoil And in the name of helping their children, foisting that onto their children, right? Mm -hmm. And so they are not, you know, doing, they're not able to hold the larger picture because Mm -hmm. you can hold the larger picture. If if you're someone who really knows the beauty of good sexuality and knows how much it can actually be linked to to spirituality, you're not going to talk to your children with a lot of fear and anxiety induction, right? You're going to be more able to understand a larger vision, even when you give restrictions and cautions, but you're, you're actually functioning from a higher vision and your child can feel it. You're not just fire and brimstone anxiety. Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife, you mentioned earlier about how we tend to, we tend not to focus on ourselves, but we tend to make the relationship work when like our partners are happy or whether like there's other people in our lives maybe like patriarchal individuals. So I'm thinking like as members of the church, we have like our bishops, we have like, uh, we have stake presidents, we have like, we have these figures in our lives that kind of tell us like, hey, do this, don't do that. Does that make it more difficult for us to become more sexually acceptable? Because we have so many like different higher ups that we're trying to appease. Yes, um, I would say that you know, some people developmentally need that. Mm. That is, they need someone to check in with. They need someone that is there as a kind of um, mentor. Yeah, like a guy. They haven't yet learned to internalize this or they haven't yet figured it out. And so developmentally speaking, we do need to start from an external reference. And some of those people are children and some of those people are adults. They haven't yet. And if you grew out of a chaotic family or there was, it was a family that was highly, highly controlling. A lot of times you haven't yet learned to internalize the ability to self-regulate and to self-modulate. So you may still need to look externally to grow in a particular way. But I think the danger we get in sometimes is we make that the end point rather than the beginning or the midpoint, because what we need to do is not be commanded in all things. We need to learn to grow in wisdom, line upon line into greater godliness. That is the greater ability to self-determine, to internalize true principles, to actually, you do have to start in a more obedience frame. That's how you start to understand how your parents or the church thinks, and it, you need to borrow that vision at first, but then you start to need to determine, okay, what do I feel? What do I believe? What is true for me? Right. You need to start to determine what feels truthful, get your own testimony is the language we use. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times we're like, well, if you have your own testimony, then you still know you should stay dependent on everybody else's mind rather than really trusting people to self-determine. And so um, so when we make that the highest good, we actually interfere with people developing an adult mind. 
right? Mm -hmm. Growing out of dependency. Now, I don't mean like do whatever you want in the name of growing up. A lot of people want to take that to mean what I'm saying. (laughs) Okay. Mm -hmm. I mean that you really are living in a place of self-determining integrity, real honesty, honesty in your relationship with God, right? Honesty in your relationship with yourself and others, not Mm self-deceiving. You can really stand by your decisions. You can stand by your beliefs, not because you know you're right about everything, but they're based in an honest mind and honest decisions about what's in fact good and right. And so you're not just looking to everybody else to tell you. And so I think a lot of times when we have a more immature mindset, we're like, okay, well, that's bad. Okay, I masturbated, whatever. Now I got to go repent with the bishop. Then I masturbate again. Then I go repent with the bishop. Meaning just staying in a dependency that doesn't ever grow into deeper ability to self-regulate and Mm self-determine. Would that involve just being more thoughtful and introspective about, okay, why am I doing this? Or what do I, what am I trying to accomplish or things like that? Yes, that definitely helps to kind of figure out what you're doing. But I think that it can help to be aware that a lot of, a lot of us don't want to grow out of a dependent role. That is, we are both encouraged not to by people that want to tell us what to do, right? And we also can want the perceived safety of somebody else telling us what's right. Mm. Absolutely psychologically very comforting. And so we can imagine that if we're just compliant enough, we're going to get blessings and things are going to go well for us. And we want that perceived security. So we actually interfere with our own ability to grow into autonomy. Yeah, Yeah, I feel that. I still feel like I do that a lot where I want like validation for my decisions or I want help a lot of help making decisions, Mm -hmm. which is good to have like that advice and that help, but it's scary to just make a decision and like move forward with it. Right. Right. Are we getting input? Exactly. Are we getting input to clarify our own thinking Mm. so that we can move forward out of our own best judgment? Or are we getting advice because we're imagining that we're either diffusing the responsibility or someone else is going to be able to tell us what to do, right? (laughs) Which is a different muscle, you know? And so it's like, am I gathering because I imagine there's something that has no risk in it? Am I, or am I gathering information as a way to make the best decision I can in an imperfect world with limited information, Mm -hmm. right? I think we want the idea if we obey everything and we get the right answer from God, we're going to be on that one path that is invulnerable. I think that's the wrong view of faith. Mm. I just don't think that's how it works, even though wouldn't it be great if it did? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So at some point you got to have faith in yourself and then just trust that you're making the right decisions and you're doing what you think is best for you. Yeah. you're do- And you're doing the best you can, which will still be imperfect, right? That there isn't an invulnerable path. I've yeah. never seen anybody walk it. Now that's different than saying there aren't true principles and there aren't wiser and better decisions than others. So I don't mean it's just a crapshoot and whatever you do is fine. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Like as Joseph Smith said, the more you live according to true principles, the more you receive blessings that are based in those principles. Like that is, you know, if you are loving and caring of others, your life is going to be better than if you're self-serving and, you know, and contemptuous. Right. But that's different than saying it isn't inherently vulnerable to live, love, and make choices. Certainty is not a part of the process. And tolerating that is a part of our spirituality. Mm. I love that. Yeah. I've always thought it was interesting. And I do this all the time where I, according to our doctrine, like I fought in the war of heaven in order to be able to have agency and make choices. Yeah. But here I am like, please God, we just tell agency. me what to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's so true. Exactly. Yeah, we, want, we want that yeah. guidance. We want those guidelines. Because like you said earlier, it's it's that comfort zone. And we don't want to necessarily leave the comfort zone because it's That's safe. Right. That's, right. That's yeah. right. And in my experience, so much of the ability to have an intimate marriage, right, is based in your ability to function more autonomously, which seems very paradoxical to people. So what it means to mature is to be able 
to regulate your own, let me think of an easier way to say it, to be able to basically know your own thinking, your own beliefs, your own sense of self while you're in close relationship with others. Mm. That's a measure of maturity. And if we want so much to borrow other people's minds or keep showing people we are compliant and therefore good, we haven't yet developed our own mind. And therefore, we will find relationships and intimacy very, very difficult, right? We'll want validation from our relationships. We'll want to be seen as good. We'll want to be needed, right? Or we will be needy, but we will have a hard time with being knowable because we don't even feel we have a self to know. Hmm. And we're not really capable of knowing another because we need them to be what gives us comfort rather than to know who they actually are. And so these struggles really emerge when you let somebody matter to you a lot. Mm -hmm. Would you say that's a benefit to us mid-singles? Because if you're in the YSA, if you're in your early 20s and you get married, then you kind of like lose that ability to get to know yourself better. But as a mid-single, you're older, you have more time to have that that introspection to figure out who you are. That's a better... I will say to that yes and no. Like, I want to give you just a full yes and say, like, (laughs) (laughs) so (laughs) let me tell you why, why yes and no. So um, I also got married. My husband was in his thirties. I was a month or two away from turning 30 when I got married. And I am really grateful for a lot of that time because by the time I got married, I knew I could stand by my choice, uh, meaning, let me say it like this. I don't mean that I had a hundred percent confidence that I was not going to be wrong about anything, but I'd had enough lived experience to be able to step in with two feet and say, I choose this person and doing it more from a place of not needing to be married. Not ne- like I could live with the idea of not ever marrying. And I was confident I could still live a good life. And so when I got married, it as I think my husband did as well, I think then when we married, it really was a choice. It wasn't because, oh, I've got to do this. So I have social standing or economic security or anything like that. And so because I think we were both, you know, reasonably functioning adults who could imagine a life of not marrying and still chose it over that, it really did function as a real sense of choice, which I think makes a marriage stronger. Because a lot of times people, when you're young, especially, but but a lot of us are young and we're in our 70s. So that is to say, psychological maturation and age are not necessarily correlated, right? So there's yeah. a lot of very immature people who are older because, well, for many reasons, I won't get into that now, but, but <laughs> so I think that, so if, but when you're younger, you are more likely to be psychologically immature. And Mm -hmm. so if a 22 year old is marrying because he needs to feel needed and he needs to feel strong relative to his 19 year old wife, right? Mm -hmm. Now people can do this at 32 and 29 too. So it doesn't mean, but like, let's say they need so much to know that she's not going to go anywhere because she needs me too much. And she's marrying him, not because she loves him, but because she wants a man that's going to give her social standing and security and provide for her. Right. That that dependency is a very common way for people to get married when they haven't grown into psychological adulthood. It feels good at first, but it festers soon enough. And it and it becomes, you know, a challenge because the issues of I choose you and I desire you aren't really there. It's that I need you and I need to be needed by you. Mm -hmm. And that undermines people's sense of freedom in marriage. And when people are happiest in marriage, they feel that they can be free to be themselves and be with the other person. Mm. Right. Yeah. Going, yeah. Going back to that differentiation. It's like when you can mm-hmm. know your own mind and be close to others. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. That differentiation is powerful. I feel like, so I'm dating someone who's not a member of the church and going into it, I was like, oh yeah, differentiation. We can be two different people in theory that was great in practice it's been difficult for me to be like okay can I really accept you for who you are can you accept me for who I am and can we support each other um in our different in our differences and allow ourselves to be whole people and it's it's a learning curve for sure it's it's been really beautiful but yeah yeah 
interesting. Well, it's interesting. I was, you know, I'm thinking about doing a course for like newlyweds and nearlyweds, like just a yeah. course, uh, you know, that like kind of what are like 10 things that you really should know going into marriage, uh, basic founding assumptions. Right. But so I was asking, I was going through the list with my husband just saying, these are the things that come to mind for me. And I was like, is there anything you would add to that list? So he was just thinking about it. And he said, I think the biggest thing for me, he was saying was like that, that I needed to grow out of the idea that for us to be a good partnership, that we needed to share the same ideas, that we needed to share a same philosophy of life or a same way of thinking. And that that pressure on me, like made it harder to both accept you or accept myself because of that variation. I think it's very much to the point that you're yeah. making, which is like, you know, how do you, I have a podcast that I, of where I work with couples and it's called room for two, which of course is the double entendre, right? Of a, <laughs> but, but, yeah. they, but this, how do you make room for two people who are going yeah. to be different, who are going to have different values? How do you make room? Like one likes to go to bed early. One likes to go to bed late, right? Okay. Wait a minute. How do we make a marriage when one's messier and one's neater? How do we actually do something where we both feel we get to be, feel at home when we're at home? That yeah. we're not being tyrannized by the other person's demands, nor are we tyrannizing. So, so like, how yeah. do we work this out? And that's a lot of soul work, right? That yeah. takes a lot of growth. And most people, well, we all grow, I think, some in marriage, but a lot of us try to get out of that growth by being tyrannical, <laughs> by yeah. telling our partner how to be and how to think differently and whatever right. to make us feel better, rather than can I stand on my own feet and let them also have their own view and find a way to share a life. Yeah. yeah. It's either my way or the highway kind of. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. We easily, easily do that. So we're right. like integrating with a partner, integrating with ourselves. That's right. Yeah. So That's it right. sounds like it's all about trying to find like that, that, like that middle ground. Yeah. And it is middle, but it's not, there really isn't a middle ground between I believe something and I don't believe meaning it doesn't mean that I know this is not necessarily what you're saying, Oliver, but it doesn't mean you have to both come to believe like halfway in that idea. You know what I mean? It, so yeah. it means, can I make room for you thinking differently than I do and not be pejorative and to truly respect that fact, right? You know, my husband's messier than I am. Like, well, it's very easy to be judgmental. Like you're doing life the wrong way, as opposed to if I weren't here, he would be fully functional right? And he would just live in a place that wasn't as neat as I am. I mean, I'm not that neat, just to be clear, and make it sound like I'm that good at it. But anyway, but just neater. So instead of like judging it, like, no, this is the person that I married. And can I, can we figure out something that works well enough for both of us without being tyrannical? Now, where it gets trickier is when it's like, you can't agree to disagree about whether or not you have a child, you can't have half a child, right? You can't, you can't, I mean, maybe there's some version of where one person moves to Texas and the other doesn't, but like either you move <laughs> as a couple to Texas or you don't, right? So there's yeah. a lot of decisions where you can't agree to disagree. And those, of course, are much more painful in the growth process because how do you sort out how to be in a marriage where one doesn't want to have sex as much as you do or one wants to have it more than you do? How do you figure out how to belong to yourself and be in that marriage? And I think that it pressures growth a lot. Like I have to determine if I'm going to accept the other person or not, right? Am I going to step towards what they desire or not? And it pushes us to be self-determining in order to make peace in our marriages. And so it's a, it's a, I often talk about it as, you know, a kind of a growth in how to say it, like it's a, it's a divine institution in the sense that it pressures growth. Our relationships always pressure our growth and the closer they are to us, the more that we do it. So I'll say one more thing. So just going back to what you were saying, Oliver, I agree. Like, I think there's a, there's a space for figuring out who you are outside of a relationship. But one of the reasons why sometimes people don't partner is because of their anxiety of losing themselves in relationship and so they tend to stay in that more single state as a way to not be sort of foist, you know, thrust into the difficulty of sharing a life. And mm -hmm. because that, because it will create turmoil, it will push growth 
And some of us don't really want to. I think I was really ambivalent about it, to be honest. That's partly why I hung out for a while before I got married. Yeah. <laughs> Same. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I'd grown up learning so much that good women just kind of fold into a man's life. And I was not interested in doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah, because yeah, like you said earlier, you're a strong, independent woman. You're doing fine on your own. So you weren't yeah. really like looking for that. Yes. And you, and then you met your husband. Yeah. Yeah. Like traditional models of marriage either where you do fold into a man's life. Maybe that's right. not what everyone's doing, but yeah. Some, yeah, I have that perception as well is that I'm going to lose myself. Yes. But with right. the right partner, I can develop that partnership, you know, exactly. Not that exactly. Long. Somebody who's not yeah. operating from that idea and yeah. who really, really is happy for you to thrive, you know, doesn't need you to be weaker than them for them to feel like a man, for example. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love what you said earlier about how you learn so much about yourself in a relationship. I think that's yeah. really true. And it's difficult for sure. I think it is easier to just like hang out, maybe have some like faraway crushes where you can like, yeah, you know, just like insert what their personality is. Cause you don't know them that well. You know what yep. I mean? Yeah. Like, yes. It's true. Yeah. And just assume someone out there is perfect for you. Whereas like when you actually get close to people and get to know them, you're like, okay, another human let's like, yes. let's work, figure this out. And I love what you said about moving toward each other. It's not necessarily like, okay, we got to compromise all the time, but it's like, how can we take steps to like figuring out how to best support each other? Yeah. And how to really make something that, you know, I don't want you to be unhappy and yet what you desire is really inconvenient for me. So what do I, what am I going to do with that? Because I have committed to God to care for this uh, infuriating individual, right? Who wants things that are different (laughs) than I want. So how do I live true to that commitment to bring my best self here? I don't want to like compromise my soul to do it, but is there some way that I could give more for this person to be happier? Right. Yeah. And that's really the fundamental muscle of marriage. And I just want to kind of qualify one thing I said, which is like, sometimes we stall because we don't want to be thrust into that difficulty. But I also am not somebody who thinks like, oh, just everybody should get married. Right. Yeah. Because there's so many ways to live a good life and many ways to be, to live it very well and be single. And I've sometimes says, you know, it takes a pretty good man or to, you know, or woman to justify not being single. So that is to say, like, you don't want to, I I think sometimes we hypervalue marriage as well. Sure. Uh And sometimes to our detriment, if we make a decision that isn't necessarily our best decision, you know, out of our fear of not marrying. Yeah. And that's the reality. I mean, and we talk about it a lot on the podcast too. We'll talk about dating and things, but we also want to talk about just single life because a lot of people that is the reality for now, or maybe for a long time, just based on different things going on in life. And so, yeah, I'd love to hear more about the sexual integration for singles. Like how do we take steps to get to a place where we do feel more integrated and not just repressed or like going between repression and like compulsion or things like that. Well, so what I would say is that, you know, whenever, so I can, I'm going to talk about it in terms of food for a minute, because it's just a little bit easier to kind of understand symbolically what I'm saying, and then I can bring it back to sexuality. So, you know, I think food and sex have a lot of similarity because they're sensual. They are a part of the good life and they're also part of, they, they also, how does it, we can't, very readily just have zero relationship. Obviously you can't do that with food because you need to serve for survival, but, but still on some level, we've got to work out our relationship to the pleasure of food and sex. Uh And when you add a lot of fear and self hatred into the mix, everything goes haywire. Yeah. It all gets bad. Uh, Yeah. Okay. And you know, so if you think about somebody who's in a family where she must be thin, her mother wants her to be a dancer. I mean, I've had clients exactly like this. They have to stay thin to succeed or whatever. And so there's just hyper focus on don't eat that. You shouldn't have this, you know? And so because there's so much, if you're going to be good, you're going to be seen as the right kind of girl. You need to not like sugar. Okay. So of course, what does this do? Well, it drives people into one of two extremes of either I will, I'll be anorexic, I'll swear it all off. It's the only way I'm going to be loved is to push this away entirely. 
or they're they're more ambivalent where they're in a kind of indulgence and then repression. So compulsive eating followed by, you know, um, austere measure, measures, for example. But in either case, there is no peace. There is this difficulty or in an antagonistic relationship with pleasure. And so even if you're succeeding by not eating, okay, um, and I put air quotes around that, right, that mm-hmm. you're still have no peace, right? You're not, you're not actually at peace in your soul because you feel that this is, you're just white knuckling your way through. Mm-hmm. If anyone's doing that around sexuality, married or not, it's a, it's a torturous slog because mm-hmm. you have to either, either you're suppressing a part of yourself right? To feel safe. I can't own my sensuality, my capacity for pleasure. I can't acknowledge or own the gift of my body that God gave me because Satan is in it. Okay. Well, that's first of all, not doctrinal. And it means you're in a divided reality with yourself, Hmm. that your body is a threat to your soul. And so you are always trying to kind of deny it, not know it, not touch it, just try to keep it all above the neck so you can be a good person and get God's <laughs> blessings. <laughs> and it's a tough, pl- it's a tough, pl- it's a tough place, but it's also, it keeps you from knowing feelings, knowing desires, knowing yourself and knowing it doesn't mean you have to act on it. Wise people are able to know their emotions, even difficult ones, learn from them and then make good decisions. And so that's a difficult spot. If you think I can't know this part of me or else it will get me. But then, of course, there's the other side where you are trying to keep it all, keep it all above the neck. And then you have these moments where you just can't anymore. And then you go into the deep dive of indulgence, you know, just like being in the pantry, eating the food and going into (laughs) deeper self-hatred and self-loathing. And then you, you know, feel unworthy, feel out of control. So again, married, single, anywhere, that's just a terrible place to be. Now, a person who does well, married or single is basically able to accept, okay, let's go back to food for just a minute. It's like, look, food is a good part. Pleasure is a good part of life, right? Food is a good part of life, or at least it can be. But if I'm going to live peacefully, how do I want to be in relationship to food that not is about, not about earning everybody else's approval, not proving I'm skinny enough or whatever enough, but that I'm actually using food and relating to a food in a way that makes my life richer and better Mm. that gives me pleasure but doesn't undermine my sense of self or my self-respect that i can feel proud of who i am and at peace with myself and receive the goodness that is in food Mm. right and so it's probably going to be some mixture of healthy eating in moderation with with, you know, occasional real, you know, eating the best chocolate cake you've ever had and things like that, that that would have real moments of intense pleasure, even in food, but it not in a way that's going to work against your health or well-being or integrity. Yeah. Right. So So, Lindsay, you're just looking up thinking, just, is there any thought you have about that before I, yeah. Is it, is it a matter of balance? Would you say, or is it it's, it is balance. I mean, I, it's like the moderation in all things. So it's true, but I don't mean that people that aren't balanced and, and have integrated sexuality couldn't have a lot of really great sex in their lives. So I don't mean that, that it's necessarily about quantity per se, but about mm-hmm. what is actually being created through the choices. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah. I so am like- I choosing in a way that makes me stronger, sticking with food for a minute, stronger, mm-hmm. happy, blesses my life. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and gives me joy. Right. So it's, it's moderate, but it's not boring necessarily. Yeah. 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 Right. It's not not indulgent. It's not an escape from oneself. It's not trying to get away from oneself. Yeah. Like, so for food, it wouldn't, you wouldn't just use it as like a coping mechanism or something. Yeah. You're not using it to treat yourself. You're not using it to get away from yourself. Yeah. By treat, I mean, I don't want to explain that right now, but what I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, you're using it as you're not going to relate to in a way that works against your peace with yourself. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And that's going to be true with sexuality too. Yeah. 
Okay. So like no. if you're eating the chocolate cake, you're enjoying the chocolate cake. Like exactly, exactly. I mean, I had a yeah. friend who really struggled with eating issues and we'd sometimes have work meetings and they would bring out cake for everybody to enjoy and she wouldn't eat it the whole time, but she would stare at that cake the whole time. And you could tell, and I could feel that her pain of where she was just Aww. trying to not. Yeah. And then often at the end, she would take a piece, but she would just eat it so quickly because she was not at peace with it. Mm-hmm. And so even though she would then eat it, she didn't get to actually enjoy it and let it bless her soul. Mm-hmm. And so she was in this, you know, antagonistic relationship with food because she saw it as something she wanted, but she shouldn't want. Yeah. And so she wasn't able to let it bless her life because the more you let it bless your life, usually the more able you are to modulate because you're not using it to get away from something. Hmm. Yeah. I really like that analogy with food and sex, because if you overindulge, that's not necessarily happy, no, but if you exactly. limit yourself, that's not, that's not healthy either. Right. Exactly. So if they're fear-based repression, you, you can self-limit out of love, out of a desire, out of choice, but it's not being driven by anxiety, fear, and self-hatred. When it's driven by that, it's going to, it's not going to go well. Mm-hmm. It's just not going to go well. Now, a lot of people have learned to think about it that way. And they're like, wait a minute, how else do I think about it? I don't know another way, but it's usually what's keeping them in an antagonistic relationship with sex or with food Hmm. is because they haven't yet learned how to be kind to themselves and not indulgent because indulgence isn't kind to ourselves. Nobody feels proud of themselves. If they've looked at seven hours of porn, nobody's coming out of that thinking, wow, I'm so free. You know, they're just not, they're not feeling that sense of growing self-respect, but neither is somebody who is terrified of their own sensuality and doesn't dare acknowledge that they see, see someone who's attractive or feels that their desires are inherently a problem. And so can I actually trust God enough to trust in the goodness of sexuality, that it's a gift to be sensual, that it's a gift to be capable of pleasure that this is a way of finding joy in life. You can't have joy without pleasure. And so now I don't mean, of course, that joy is equivalent to any indulgent moment, of course, right? But you need to be able to integrate pleasure. And so this is a good thing. And how do I make choices that increase the sense of goodness in my life? How do I make choices that I think accrue to my peace of mind my peace with myself. And what are those decisions for me? I know what I've been told. I know what others think it should be. And you have voices all over as a single adult. You have people in the church, out of the church, you're whacked for doing that. You know, you're crazy. You know, you you have all kinds of judgments, right? But who am I going to be? What do I believe is best for me? What do I believe is true? And does it accrue to my self-respect and my ability to love through sexuality? This is really an important measure. Like, does it increase my ability to love and be loved through sexuality, my choices? Mm. Mm. Increase your ability to love and be loved, your capacity. Because that's what good sex is about, is like being in love for each other. That's right. Because I never say sex is inherently good. Like people say sex is good. Well, depends what you're yeah. doing with sexuality, right? Yeah. Is, you know, it, I, I don't know that anything is inherently good. It's what are you creating or doing with it? Mm. Like, how are you using religion it, yeah. for bad? Like Christ was clear about that. Lots of people use religion for, for malice. Mm-hmm. Right. And so how do you relate to something and does it create strength in you and in others? Is it anchored into love? Mm-hmm. And how do you kind of move past some of those fears? Well, one of the fear inducing ideas is just that sex is more powerful than you are. Yeah. And it's just not true. We, yeah. I mean, we are always the decision makers. Now, if you have been unwilling to take a look at sex, okay, and take a look at your feelings, you're you've kind of been burying all of your feelings, and then they're sort of operating from the basement and running you around. Okay, so there is some truth in that. That if you have just shamed everything you do you will feel a sense of compulsivity or a sense of sex being stronger than you are. But that's because we often struggle to then turn and face that demon within us to turn and understand it. Um, Like I think a therapy that does a really good job with this is acceptance and commitment therapy. It's just a model Mm -hmm. of making some distinction between feelings and choices. 
and using more feeling, whether that's sexual desire or emotions or anger or fear or whatever it is, and taking a moment to take a look at it, right? Rather than trying to get away from it. Because the more we run from our feelings, the more they, the bigger they get and the more they run the show. Mm-hmm. And so if we can stop and, you know, I remember at times where I'd be like, I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling depressed. I have no idea why. But for me, it'd be like, okay, well, there's probably a reason. Start, I mean, might be just some weird biochemical moment right now, but there's probably something going on that I'm not paying attention to. What is it? And the more you can kind of get in there and take a look, you know, I think I'm feeling kind of powerless around this thing. And what do I is there something I need to address about that? Is there something that I need to do to affect this reality differently, right? So you can use those feelings to learn and then make better choices. But when you're like, I'm not supposed to, you know, I know some families that are actually depressogenic because they don't deal with negative, quote unquote, negative emotions. Everybody needs to be happy. Someone feels sad and they move on quickly to something cheerful. The problem is, is that the child doesn't learn how to learn from negative or sad or difficult, angry emotions. And therefore those things come and sort of start hijacking the person. And so it's not until we sort of turn and look at things that are hard to deal with that we can then become a chooser within it. Mm. I love that. Mm -hmm. I like the idea of not having the fear of opening that, that, you know, that sexual door, because you can open it. And it could stay open as long as you want, but you could also have that ability to close it whenever. That's right. That's right. Yes. I think some of us are so afraid of feelings. Um, And one way to build more self-confidence is to practice tolerating feelings that you don't like or feelings that you're not entirely sure how to solve or you know, I feel sexual desire and I feel a commitment to this. Okay. Well, I don't like that. I feel it, but I can tolerate feeling it. So the more we get more able to tolerate seeing parts of ourselves or feeling feelings we don't like and not having them determine us, like the stronger we get and the more trust we have that we are the decision maker ultimately. So we just get less afraid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like this is good timing because recently my therapist was having me do feelings journaling where I just like write about something a strong emotion I had in the day and how I felt about it. Cause yeah, that's sometimes hard to just be like in touch with feelings and accept those negative feelings and yeah. let them be and let them yes. stay for a while or pass. And yeah, yeah exactly. It. Yeah, that's right. There's a lot, there's a, somebody I listened to who talked about mental health was highly related to tolerance for, of difficult feelings. Mm-hmm. So it's that they just didn't kind of beat themselves up for having it or try to get them to go away. They just were more able to kind of let them be there and pass mm-hmm. or let them be there and learn from them. Um, but they didn't feel quite so controlled by them. And so the more we build that capacity to stay a chooser, you're just one example of this. When I was, I've told the story before, but w- I made a decision early on to be home with my kids. And one of my childs had been diagnosed with special needs and I had a newborn and my husband was traveling and it was very, very difficult time. But I had made that decision very deliberately that I wanted to be the one to be home and um, be with the kids. And it was so overwhelming sometimes, like just couldn't go to the grocery store or couldn't do it without having two screaming kids. And I was alone, you know, and all John was gone. And so I would often be overwhelmed, but I would just take myself through the feelings. This is very hard. This is the situation like, and, and kind of go through it, not, not shame myself for feeling overwhelmed or being uncertain if I could really do it, but then kind of reasserting my choices. What do I want in this? Do I want to do something different? Am I changing my mind about this? But just that process of going through the feelings and then reasserting a choice was the antidote to depression for me. It was the way to keep it clear in my mind that I'm a chooser within a couple of hard realities, right? Like I want to be the one home, but I have really challenging situation. And so how am I going to, you know, what am I choosing in the face of that, those two ideals that feel like they go against each other? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love how you brought this back to choice again, because we were talking Mm -hmm. about that before. Yeah. It is like driven by personal choice. I think that's Mm -hmm. really great. I'd love to hear about any 
resources from you or maybe other books or things you know about that would be great for kind of our demographic, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. especially those who want to learn more and think about these topics more. Just thinking about books. I don't know if I have. Maybe. I know one thing I'll say is like books about sex feel scary or overwhelming to me because they are about sex and I'm again, yeah. I'm like repression, but also it's like, yeah, yeah. As a single for sure. Yeah. So, and they don't necessarily well, background. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Say that again, Oliver. That Yeah. Well, she was talking about like books about sex are kind of hard to read, especially for like for us members, because they don't necessarily yeah. know our background where we're That's coming. Right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. That, no, that's the very true. They can be like seven well. steps in a different direction. Yeah, so I, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, I do. So I have two courses that I think are very relevant for any adult married or not. And that's the art of desire, which you talked about, Lindsay, and then art mm-hmm. of loving, which is the men's course, because they're very much about challenging some of the false traditions we have around sexuality. Mm-hmm. Right. And a really kind of hard look at sort of how we've tended to kind of orient to something that scares us, but how it works against coming to peace with sexuality and ourselves. But they also are bo- both courses that are facilitating self-development, moving more from other um, referencing and outside of ourselves and to forge a deeper internal reference, because that's so critical to being at peace with ourselves and being at peace with our sexuality and the choices we make around sexuality. So those are, um, I think very, they're very popular courses and they're very helpful courses for understanding the link between psychological development and sexual development or peace with one's sexuality and how one can be at peace, whether single or if one decides to partner to be more able to really have sexuality be an, an expression of intimacy. That is to be able to be, you know, a lot of us want sex to be intimate, but we want nothing to do with our sexuality. So it's very hard for it to be about being known through sex when we don't even want to know it. And so how do we come to peace with our sexual nature so that we're in a position to love and be loved through it? Mm, Yeah. I'm probably halfway through the art of the desire course which I like had been resistant to for a while until another single friend told me she she took it. But yeah, it's been really amazing for me just to, first of all, yeah, I think as women in the church, we are kind of conditioned a little bit to be very service oriented. And that honestly like carries over to sex. Like my view of sex is like, okay, when I get married, I'm just gonna have to like put out for my husband all the time. Yeah, it's terrible. exciting to me. Yeah, no, of course not. And and you know, it's, it's, it's no longer fun two days into the honeymoon. Yeah, but sex or play, it's play or it's work and you don't want to make it work or else it's done though. You have to, it has to be about playfulness. Yeah. So it's been really helpful to think about getting in touch with my desires and also reframing sex as something where I can desire it and think about when and how and why I desire it and like get in touch with that and then use it to connect with somebody else who I love. So that's right been really helpful so far yeah (laughs) yeah good oh we've loved having you on this has been pretty mind-blowing honestly you'll have to go back and listen a few times yeah really really helpful for sure i'm so glad yeah yeah we'll put some (laughs) links up to your website your podcasts you have the podcast which is you being on other people's podcasts yes that's the conversations with dr jennifer so that's free content and then room for two is the subscription podcast where i work with different people yeah yeah where you're actually doing like therapy sessions which is cool so that's incredible yeah Yeah. your website has all the courses on it too yes that's right highly recommended so yeah we'll link those